0: Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Affirmative action may be breathing its last. In October, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on a case regarding race-conscious admissions, leading to widespread speculation that the program may be banned in the very near future. Here to discuss is Jason Riley senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Riley has written widely on subjects ranging from immigration to Thomas Sowell, but today we'll be focusing on our education system and the legacy of affirmative action. With no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Jason, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So on this podcast, one topic we've discussed a lot is perception versus reality. Um, so to kick off the conversation, uh, what are the actual issues that you think are facing the Black community today um, in reality versus what are they perceived to be?
1: Well, I think the um, the reality is that a lot of the, the problems uh, that the Black community is facing and, and particularly the Black underclass, um, lower income Blacks. Um, these are um, issues dealing with antisocial behavior, uh, certain uh, attitudes um, and habits and behaviors uh, sort of conducive to upward mobility um, are lacking in many of these communities. Uh, and I think that's evident in the violent crime rates um, and attitudes towards school and learning. Um, Whereas the, the perception is that the main problem uh, is racism, um, what other people are doing to Blacks versus what Blacks are doing uh, to themselves or for themselves. So I think that is the sort of uh, perception versus reality divide. And there, there was a time, of course, when uh, the major problem was, in fact, um, what larger society Uh, was doing to black people in terms of oppression uh, under systems like Jim Crow that we had, um, obviously under slavery. Um, But I don't think that anti-black racism today um, is primarily uh, the problem. I think the problem today has to do with um, uh, the lack of sort of internal uh, self-development, group development that uh, has or hasn't taken place uh, within these uh, low-income black communities. And I think we need to focus more on that internal self-development and less on on uh, these outside forces, uh, systemic racism or, or um, unconscious bias and the like. And that is not to say that racism has been dispelled, that it doesn't exist anymore, that it's gone away. And it's not to say that racism can't have a bad impact on, um, on upward mobility and on um, uh, these hated groups Um, But that's different from saying that that is the primary barrier today uh, in terms of upward mobility, Um, whereas the perception remains that it is. And I think that's the problem.
0: So you alluded to uh, in that answer, um, issues about habits. um, And I know that you've talked a lot in other places um, about family structure issues. So I wanna start um, because I I wanna get to the discussion about affirmative action that's been in the news so much recently. But if we kind of start looking at this from the bottom up, right? uh, There is an issue that there just aren't enough Um, you know, black students getting super high SAT scores right now in America of, you know, the quality necessary to get into places like Harvard. Um, And so what do you think are kind of some of the issues feeding into that? Is our current education system serving black students well? Um, Is the issue kind of um, with family structure or habits in the home, or is it some combination thereof?
1: The latter. I think it's a combination of factors. And I think one of the problems is trying to focus on disparities among test scores at age 18. Hmm. I mean, (laughs) the the folly of doing this, I think, can be seen in some of the studies looking at, say, um, the number of words uh, children hear at home based on their socioeconomic background. So there have been studies showing that if you come from a a family of uh, professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers, and so forth, your, your kids might hear uh, something like 2,400 words per hour uh, at home uh, on average. If you come from a working class family, um, it may be like 1,200 words, so maybe half that. And if you come from a family on welfare, uh, you're down to about 600 words per hour. And that may not seem like uh, a lot, but what it means is that over a period of time, um a 10-year-old uh child of, of Parents on Welfare will not have heard as many words at home as a three-year-old child of professional parents.
0: Hmm.
1: So this is starting before you even enter kindergarten. And and it's exacerbated um by the fact that uh you know, so many black kids are relegated to the poorest performing schools in the system. Who who would be shocked? that at age 18, we're getting differences, racial differences broadly on on SAT scores. Uh, But just because the disparity shows up there doesn't mean that the test itself is causing the disparity. Yet that seems to be the narrative that the sort of anti-test movement is putting forward. The test is racist. If you listen to uh, scholars like uh, Ibram Kendi, um, uh, they, they go after the test whereas the test is not causing the disparity. The test is merely revealing a disparity and getting rid of the test won't get rid of the disparity. It'll just obscure it. That disparity is going to show up later on. It's going to show up uh, when that, that, that person goes to apply for a job or, or, or any kind of cognitive assessment that that person might encounter later on in life, that disparity is going to show up. And so I think we, we do need to be looking to uh, the t- K-12 school system um uh and not uh you know SAT scores when when the kids are um are, are teenagers um i think this starts much much earlier and um uh but that al- also you know presupposes that attitudes uh towards education and the importance of education are evenly spread among groups and the reality is that they are not um there are families um from different backgrounds that place different amounts of emphasis on learning. I'm, um, you know, Asian kids, for instance, um, uh, you know, watch half as much television and read twice as many books as, uh, black kids. Um, that's going to show up in test score results as well. Um, in some of these, uh, even low income Asian communities, there have been, uh, reports and studies showing that, um, extra money goes toward test prep. And so um, uh, we, we have to keep that in mind, that, that not all groups place the same amount of emphasis on, 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 on these issues. Uh, and, 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 and so that's also going to factor into the outcomes that we see.
0: You sort of recently brought up um, Ibram X. Kendi, and you've pointed out elsewhere um, that groups on the left have been very focused on things like getting the 1619 Project into classrooms, you know, starting new AP curricula surrounding um, African-American studies and the like. Um, and I think from their perspective, part of the idea behind that is that it is going uh, to provide I'm trying to strong arm this a little bit, provide material that's more relatable, that Black students are more knowledgeable about, um, and help improve their academic performance. I think, on the other hand, what you've kind of alluded to is that part of the issue is um, you know, thinking about these perspectives from a perspective of grievance, and you know perhaps CRT might feed into that. Um, what is your kind of analysis about how these kinds of initiatives, either kind of on the extreme CRT or on the less extreme, um, the emphasis on incorporating much more African-American studies into the classroom, how do you think those are going to affect African-American performance in schools?
1: I, I think that that's an easy answer. It's, 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 it's not going to have uh, the impact. It's not going to... Um, Close the achievement gap that uh, uh, has been so so stubbornly wide for so long. Um, Whenever I get asked about CRT, I like to remind people that our fourth graders and eighth graders cannot read and do math at grade level. I mean, can we focus on that before we try to turn them into social justice warriors? I mean, history scores are just as bad. our kids can't do the basics and um uh, and i think that's what we should be focused on are teaching them the basics um our kids don't know how to think and and these activists want to focus on teaching them what to think And, and 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 that should not be the focus of of an education um, what they need is the basics and uh, they're not getting the basics right now. And it's even worse when you start breaking it down by race and ethnicity in terms of who's lagging behind whom. Um, so I, I, I just think that's where that's where the the, the the focus needs to be. And that's not what. Um, uh, the candies of the world or the nicole Hannah joneses of the world want to focus on but i i you know that there's no there's no getting around that and and uh and a knowledge economy mm. um uh, education is important and uh if you want these kids to have productive lives uh going forward they need a, a sound education and too many of them simply are not getting it and and the sad part for me is that It's not that they're not getting this education because we don't know how to teach kids from difficult backgrounds or kids from poor families. Um, And we know that's not the case because there are education models out there doing this Mm -hmm. very effectively. We have uh, high-performing charter schools full of overwhelmingly full of Black and Hispanic kids from poor backgrounds that qualify for free and reduced lunches and so forth, um, outscoring on standardized tests the wealthiest kids from the whitest suburbs in America. Some of the best public schools in America are public charter schools full of Black and Latino kids. So we have the education models out there to close this achievement gap, Mm. or at least narrow it significantly. The problem is political. It's getting those models scaled up to the numbers where we need them to satisfy the demand. The charter school wait list has hundreds of thousands of kids on it um, waiting to get into some of these high-performing charter schools, and the politicians and the policymakers Uh, refused to expand the supply of these schools because of political pressure from the teachers unions, who want uh, basically a monopoly on public education, regardless of the quality of that education.
0: So we've kind of discussed, I guess, if you want to divide this into supply and demand, the issues with the supply issue, that there just aren't enough Black kids getting good educations right now in America. Uh, But if we move on to the demand issues and talk about affirmative action, uh, which has been big in the news right now, the Supreme Court has heard arguments about it. There's a lot of speculation that this policy, which has been in place for some odd 50 years, is about to be overturned. Um, And 50 years, I mean, Sandra Day O'Connor famously said that she expected this was going to be defunct within 25 years or uh, not defunct, but no longer necessary. Um, as an experiment goes, 50 years is a long time, uh, to be able to get a sense of what the results of this policy have been. So what can we say that affirmative action has achieved versus not achieved?
1: Well, it hasn't achieved what its proponents said it would achieve. Uh, that, that's, that's the point. It, it hasn't helped, uh, uh, the low income blacks, that um, the proponents of it have long said it would help and and we can talk about this but the the best way to show that empirically is to look at the gains the blacks were making prior to the affirmative action era and compare those gains to what has been made since the affirmative action era Um, uh, and, and 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 when you when you compare those two periods i think it's quite obvious that affirmative action has not had the the uh, intended consequences that we were told to expect. Um, what's interesting with, with respect to higher education, however, is that since Brown and scholars like uh, John Yu, uh out at uh, Berkeley Law School have pointed this out, um, the court has been um, very uh, intolerant of the use of race in various other sectors, um, you know, the race can't be considered mm-hmm. in, in government hiring and federal contracting in child custody issues. Um, there was a case back in 20, uh, uh, 2007 um, saying that race couldn't be considered when, when assigning kids in K through 12 education. But the courts have consistently carved out this exception for higher education. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it it goes back some 50 years now, or close to 50 years, um, with the Bakke decision in 1978, where you got the split decision, uh, but the controlling opinion said um, no quotas are allowed, no no set-asides are allowed, but race can be a factor, um, as long as it's not the determinative factor in considering uh, college admissions. And... They've continuously reaffirmed that position uh, through the Fisher cases, through the Gutter case, and the Grotz case that you cited with uh, O'Connor making her statement about we might need it for another 25 years. But they've consistently given colleges this opening. You can consider race as a factor um, for the purposes of a more diverse student body. And, and, and what that really means in reality is that You can consider race as long as you're not too obvious about it. Uh, And the problem is that, um, well, there's several problems. The first one is that this is blatantly unconstitutional. The Constitution says that public institutions uh, cannot consider race in, in, in these matters. And then you have the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says any institution, public or private, that receives federal funds cannot consider race, which includes basically every college and university, almost every college and university in the country. Um, so so you have this constitutional hurdle, you have this hurdle over, over civil rights statutes, and then you have the fact that the schools have been violating the terms of the agreement, so to speak, in terms of how race is used. And the reality is that it has been used as the determinative fact. And in this case, you know, it's gotten so obvious that the schools and University of North Carolina and Harvard are the two schools that um, are at issue in the current Supreme Court case. But they're not even arguing that they don't really use race as a determinative factor. They're, they're, they're just they're, they're pretty much arguing that it's necessary for purposes of diversity. So let us continue doing it. But there have been um, some studies submitted in this um, in this case that just show how obviously race is being used. So there's a, a, a professor at, uh, at Duke University, an economist whose last name I always mangle, R.C. Diacono, I believe is his name, Peter. Um, so he's a Duke economist and did a study showing that um, showing empirically that uh, your, your, your typical Asian male applying to Harvard has about a 25% chance of admission. You change, you keep his credentials the same and you change his race to black, his chances of admission jump to 95 percent. And at the UNC, uh, uh, at the University of North Carolina for in-state applicants, uh, the disparity is even wider. Uh, in terms of your chances of getting in based on race, so it's obvious that these schools are not just using race as one of many factors they're using it as the factor and um I think there's a good chance that the court is uh going to no longer allow them to do that, and I think that would be that would be a good thing um not only because it's a blatant uh violation, I think of the Constitution and the civil rights statutes um but because I don't think it's working as well, which we can talk about. Um, uh, you know, you can uh, you can oppose a, a, a affirmative action on the, on these legal grounds, but you can also oppose it because it hasn't done what proponents said it would do. And it's not just that it hasn't um, worked; you could also argue that it's been harmful. Um, so it's not only been ineffective; it's actually harming the intended beneficiaries.
0: So I guess to kind of strong arm, there there are kind of two major arguments in favor of affirmative action, I think. And I'm curious what your response to them will be. First of all, from the perspective of like helping black students, um, there's the idea with which I I think it was really defended at the beginning um, that you need to give black students a leg up to get them into the middle and upper class, get them kind of surrounded by the right people, and that that would eventually trickle down such that in the future, there would be, you know, kind of a broader pipeline of, of you know, qualified black students to get into these top institutions. Um, so has that been the way things have played out?
1: No, it hasn't. And, and, and you can sort of demonstrate that in a, in a, in a, in a few different ways. Uh, one is you can look at the rate at which blacks were entering uh, the skilled professions, middle-class professions, uh, prior to the affirmative action era, which I'm dating to the 1970s, um, um, uh, which is when these policies really were, were put into effect in earnest, is in the 1970s. But if you look at the rate at which blacks were earning, uh, entering the skilled professions in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, they were doing so at much higher rates than they would be in the 70s and the 80s, and so forth. And so um, um, that's one way to measure the, the effectiveness of these policies. But what the, the real problem with using affirmative action in higher education uh, to uh, increase the number of, of, of uh, increase the, the ranks of the black middle class. Is, is what's known as mismatching among the social scientists. In other words, what has happened is that students, black students and other minority students have been steered into schools where they're not academically prepared to do the work. And what that has meant is that you have higher dropout rates among these students, um, or they're switching to easier easier majors than that, what they originally wanted to um, uh, major in. And, and, and so uh, the, the, the upshot of this is, is what we saw in, uh, out in California, um, which is that in the mid 1990s, California ended racial preferences and college admissions and college and black college graduation rates went up after they did that, uh, including in the more difficult fields of math and science and engineering and so forth. So at Berkeley, for example, uh, black college graduation rates had been declining in the 1980s under affirmative action. After uh, the schools ended race-based admissions, there was a reversal in that trend. And so at the end of the day, a policy that had been put in place to increase the number of middle-class blacks had in practice resulted in fewer doctors and lawyers and engineers than we would have had in the absence of the policy. Uh, And that's due to, again, this this mismatching result. So uh, an an illustration of that is a study done some years ago of students at MIT, uh, black students at MIT, who had uh, scored in the um, 90th percentile on the math portion of the SAT among all kids of all races in the country, 90th percentile. Very smart kids. But among their peers at MIT, they were in the 10th percentile. Mm. So a black student at MIT who would have been hitting it out of the park, dean's list at a less selective institution was instead struggling at MIT. And therefore, dropout rates were higher and transfers out of um, more difficult fields were higher. The same economist at Duke um, uh, did another study of Blacks there, he looked at uh, Blacks entering freshman year who had said they wanted to major in economics or one of the STEM fields. And he said that Black males in particular were far more likely to express a desire to major in one of those fields, but also far more likely to ultimately transfer out of those fields after entering school than their white counterparts. Again, setting up smart black kids to fail, I think, has been the legacy of affirmative action in college admissions. And it's not necessarily a race problem uh, when I talk about this mismatch. It's not just a racial mismatch. Studies have shown that any time you admit a student to a school without the credentials that match the average student admitted to the school, that student is going to struggle. Uh, that could that could be true of a legacy, uh, a, a, a child of alumni. That could be true of an athlete, uh, someone on a scholarship. Any if you if you made a policy that said you know we're, we're only you know we're going to give preferences to people with green eyes, you would have the same problem, because what what, what the research has shown is that only the students or or it's most likely the students. That meet those credentials of the average student are prepared to succeed, and and uh, anyone who doesn't is is is, is going to struggle at these schools. And this is not about being smart or not smart or qualified or unqualified. It's simply about matching the students with schools that are going to present the information, the material, at a pace that 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 they can keep up with. And so after affirmative action ended out at the University of California system, those black kids that were funneled into Berkeley or UCLA, which are the more selective schools, were instead going you know, to UC Irvine or Riverside or Santa Barbara and graduating. I mean, what what, what is the point of flunking out of Duke versus graduating from North Carolina State?
0: Student debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's the other thing you're doing. You're saddling these kids with, um, with student debt and, and no degree. Um, but um, but that, that essentially has been the practical impact of affirmative action. We often talk about affirmative action in terms of its aspirations and what we hope it will do and what we want it to do. But here we need to focus on what it has actually done. Like you said, we have a 50-year track record now. What does the evidence show?
0: And I, I want to circle back to kind of the second, the second argument that I had said. But, but one kind of quick thing on this: uh, a lot of schools, people suspect in response to fears that affirmative action uh, will be um, ruled illegal, have started in response eliminating the SAT or the LSAT from their admissions. So I guess you know, kind of the response to what you said would be, well, a lot of these schools as a result are just going to, you know, probably take a lot of people who who are less qualified because, you know, because of this ruling. Um, how do you think that's going to play out? Do you think that as a result, schools like MIT are just going to be easier because they're going to have, you know, fewer qualified students, they're not going to be accepting the the SAT?
1: You're getting some backlash already. It's interesting that you mentioned MIT. That's a school yeah. that dropped it for the pandemic yeah, and has now brought it back.
0: Right. But not everywhere has.
1: Right. Purdue is another place that recently announced they were going to start requiring SATs. I think when it comes to a place like MIT, they'll have to or, or, yeah. or they're going to lose out their competitors who don't um, – uh, who do continue using the the SAD Caltech, for instance? Um, uh, that that's just survival if they want to stay. But but it also speaks more broadly to um, how uh, you're, you're going to harm schools qualitatively when you when you do this. If you dumb down admissions, it means you're going to have to dumb down grading and dumb down graduation requirements. They all work in tandem. Because who, what, what, who is the school? What, what school is going to want to admit a bunch of of black and Hispanic kids who ultimately flunk out, or get poor grades, or concentrate at the bottom of the class? They're not going to want to do that. And in order to avoid doing that, if you're lowering their standards to get in, you're going to have to lower their standards in terms of grades and lower their standards in terms of the, the requirements to graduate. And so, um, uh. It's bad. It's moving away from meritocracy is, 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 is a bad way to go for American higher education. I mean, um, I, that, that, that's the bottom line. Um, and it's you know, the other thing that's odd or, or, or uh, about the push from the social justice left um, to eliminate testing is that they want to replace it with more subjective Standards of evaluation, but if you honestly believe that these are you know, systemically racist uh, protocols, why would you want to to move away from objective standards? I mean, if you think these schools are populated by inveterate racists, why would you want them making these holistic decisions about who gets into a school? Versus a parent or a student being able to say, hey, my kid got the grade, they have the class rank, they deserve to be in the school. Don't tell me you don't like their personality. And, and, and of course, we've been down this road um, with Jewish students in the past. Um, Harvard used to have holistic reviews. <laughs> the reason was to keep out Jews. Or to tamp down their numbers. Oh, you're yes, you have great grades and all that, but you're just not the Harvard type <laughs> that we're looking for. That's now happening to Asians. Mm. That's why we have this lawsuit before the uh, Supreme Court. So we've been down this road, and it's odd that the social justice activists want to go back to that system of evaluating students and move away from these objective standards. And that's aside and a part of from what I said earlier, which is that eliminating the test is not going to eliminate the gap. If you, if you want to help people move ahead, you need to know where they are because they can only get where they need to go from where they are. And that test is simply telling you where people are. And if you want to help them, they need to know the truth. And, and and so I, I think that um, for a whole host of reasons, Moving away from standardized tests is the wrong way to go, not only in terms of helping these, these, these low-performing minority groups, but in terms of, 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 of harming the quality of higher education in general in America.
0: So to move on to the second argument I think people put forward in favor of affirmative action, which in some ways is, is a little bit trickier to deal with, um, but this idea of like the value of diversity um, in general – um, because I think there's an element of it that, that people can kind of relate to like, oh, like it is actually good to interact, you know, with a wide variety of different types of people from different backgrounds, you know, when you're an undergraduate, um, and I, universities have kind of made the case that that is part of their educational mission, um, so I guess, can you evaluate that idea for me? Because um, I think that, that is one thing that affirmative action has done is it's kind of uh, artificially that it has, um, you know, kind of made sure that there is like a couple of everyone, you know, at these top universities.
1: What, what, but how? I mean, by putting... There's segregated dorms <laughs> at these schools. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what... There's segregated mm-hmm. graduation ceremonies. I mean, this but my, my my biggest problem with the diversity argument is is um quantifying the diversity benefit it, w- w- where's the evidence is it is it is, is diversity um, uh, improve graduation rates does it improve earnings after school when you enter the workforce how is this measured and 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 uh, I, I i think the evidence is very very lacking when it comes to actually quantifying the benefits of of diversity um there are aesthetic arguments that are made um but but I don't know that uh black kids need to be sitting next to white kids either in K-12 schools or in higher education in order to learn um yet that seems to be the argument that the other side is making
0: and and you could also look I think they're making the me- argument argument. They're making the argument that white kids need to be able to sit next to black kids to learn.
1: Yes, it's a one way. It's a one way diversity. That is that is interesting. Um, But but even on its own merits, if you look around the world uh, internationally, um, uh, in places like South Korea and Japan, uh, uh, schools, you do not have the racial diversity that is so vaunted in America and those kids and from those countries regularly kick our butts mm. on international tests if diversity is necessary to master uh, certain fields math science what have you where is the evidence why do people from these monocultures do so well and so much better than our kids from diverse schools do on international tests and and and, and that again speaks to what some of these policies are doing in terms of American competitiveness going forward. And um, because I, 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 can, I can assure you that in India and Japan and South Korea, they are not, you know, um, navel-gazing over this diversity stuff. Mm. They, they, are, they, are, uh, they want their best and brightest to be challenged. Um, they want to know who they are and uh and 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 and, and they and they want to send them out into the world able to compete against the best and uh to the extent that we are moving away from that mindset i think um uh we're going to have some problems down the road
0: so You've written a book recently, uh, The Black Boom, which was about economic um, economic growth within the Black community. Um, and there are a lot of questions I could ask about it, but we are pressing up on time. So I guess I'll just ask, um, how do, do these kind of economic factors relate to what we've been talking about throughout this conversation?
1: The premise of the book was, was just that um, there was a tremendous amount of uh, black economic advancement
0: uh,
1: prior to COVID under the previous administration. And I don't think it got the attention it deserved because you had a a press corps that was dead set on uh, taking down the president and not giving him credit for anything. Uh, And and so this was a really underreported story, but under uh, President Trump prior to the pandemic, we saw record low unemployment, for blacks, we saw record low poverty rates for blacks, and we saw black wages rising at a faster rate than white wages. That's called a narrowing of income inequality. That's what was going on. Um, Now COVID obviously devastated these trends and the book was not written to score partisan points. It was just written to note um, that apparently what the black underclass needs are the types of policies we saw prior to COVID more than they need a woke president. And um, uh, uh, and I wanted to point out some of the trends that we saw, and that's why I wrote the book. But in reality, um, what we saw during that period is what we've seen during previous periods when the economy was growing, um, uh, when there was a focus on less regulation of the private sector, we saw blacks benefiting. I mentioned earlier that, um, one way to judge the merits of affirmative action was to compare what was going on in black America prior to the affirmative action era. And I do that in this book as well. Um, according to, uh, uh, several economists on the left and right and studies written by scholars on the left and right, the period of fastest growth in America for blacks, after slavery occurred the, between the post-war period, the late nineteen forties, and the early nineteen seventies. Now, the post-war period produced uh, great economic growth in America, but it also was a period where segregation was still legal. This was still Jim Crow. It was a period when black political representation uh, was was quite small and ineffective. Um, And yet we saw tremendous Black growth. Their earnings were growing at the fastest rate uh, ever. And to me, it tells you that what Blacks need are not people who look like them in higher office. What Blacks need are not uh, special racial preferences like affirmative action and special treatment from the government. What they need are... Growing economies and access to labor markets and um that was the focus prior to covid. That was the focus in the post war period and uh, I think going forward, if you want to help low income minorities, that should be the focus uh, and that's sort of the case i'm 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 trying to lay out uh, in the book
0: so I guess uh you know to close off here, one last question. Um we've talked a lot about, you know, the issues facing the black community. Um whether that be from an educational standpoint, from a family standpoint, um or from an economic standpoint. Um what can we do um productively to address some of these issues?
1: Well, I wrote um uh another book some years ago and the title is Please Stop Helping Us. <laughs> <laughs> Which sort of tells you how I might answer this question. Yeah, it's it's um <laughs> to me it's more of, of what we need to stop doing than what we need hmm. to start doing. Um, you know, stop keeping uh, uh black kids trapped in underperforming schools. Give their parents choice. Um, uh, stop um raising minimum wages that price uh, less experienced. Uh, less skilled workers out of the labor force, disproportionate number of whom happen to be black, um, stop imposing occupational licensing requirements that are onerous and burdensome and keep, uh, budding black entrepreneurs from, uh, starting their own jitney service or hair braiding salon or what have you. Um, these are the things that I think we need to stop doing. And I think those would have, uh, a much bigger, um, uh, and and much better uh, uh, record of of success than uh, racial preferences. And I would also add one thing we didn't get into. In addition to the dubious legality of racial preferences, in addition to um, how much sense it makes to continue with a racial spoil system in an increasingly pluralistic America, you also have the fact that Racial preferences are unpopular in America. Poll after poll after poll has shown over the decades that majorities of not just whites, but of blacks, of Hispanics, of Asians are opposed to racial preferences in higher education. If the Supreme Court strikes these down, it will be doing what I think is not only constitutionally Uh, correct, but popular to boot. There is a select group of Americans, particularly on the progressive left, who like these policies. But your average American, at least judging by the polls, uh, does not. And I think uh, that's another reason to get rid of them.
0: Well, thanks so much, Jason. This has been super interesting. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Jason Riley on affirmative action, its legacy and impact on both the Black community and our education system as a whole. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. You can also find us on Twitter at Madison Program and Instagram, and find out more about what we do at jmp.princeton.edu. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time here on Madison's Notes.